Greetings, Minecrafters, and welcome to Episode 9, Learned Optimism. Today we're going to discuss pessimism and optimism and how these are so different. And of course, I think most people would say, if you, you know, sort of poll or a thousand random adults or teenagers even off the street, they would probably say that pessimism is negative and optimism is positive. And this, of course, is true, but there's way more to it than the old, you know, the simple cliche of looking at something as half full or half, half empty. There's a lot more to this. Both pessimism and optimism really have to do with our filter. You know, so I think of, I think of a colander that we dump pasta in and, you know, or vegetables or whatever. And it kind of, you know, the water comes through and what stays, you know, is what we've got to work with. Well, it's kind of like that with someone who's pessimistic, you know, kind of filtering through and seeing the negative and somebody who's optimistic, you know, what, what filters out is mostly negative and what stays is the positive. And it isn't even, you know, possible to discuss optimism, especially learned optimism, without talking about Marty Seligman, definitely one of my favorites. Uh, he's known as the father of positive psychology. And I will tell you that uh, I had the pleasure of sitting on a rather large committee, or I think it was more like an organization, at the an international organization of positive psychology and appreciative inquiry. And he's just one of the nicest nicest guys. And what's also cool about him is that he's very, very open about his own depression. And he's also very clear when he says that positive psychology is not happyology and that we, he's not dismissing our negative feelings at all. We absolutely need to sit with those and feel those, acknowledge those and validate those, and then learn to shift out of that to a more positive way of thinking. So Marty explains that optimism is way more than the cliche half-full perspective. Someone who's optimistic, you know, again, it's their filter, and it also has to do with how they, you know, manage and perceive setbacks and also their own personal victories. When the optimist, you know, is thrown one of life's curveballs, you know, this big setback, they perceive it as being temporary and that it's possible to, you know, change it for next time. And then it's, you know, just this one situation and even eventually that they can, you know, grow from it. And when, you know, a victory happens for the optimist or something, you know, good happens to the optimist, they also think that they kind of own it. I own this. I did this. And then it's going to stick. This is going to last forever. And I can, you know, use this in my life, you know, in another circumstance. The pessimistic person, however, when they're throwing of life, life's curveballs, you know, big challenge comes their way. Everything to the pessimist is the three Ps, personal, pervasive, and permanent. And Marty says that when a pessimistic person is thrown a curveball, that, 
you know, because it's permanent, it's going to undermine them forever and affect everything they do. And when, you know, the pessimist has a victory happen, they don't own it. The thought process is, oh, this just happened. Um, It was, you know, like a one-time fluky thing. And I can't use this, you know, in my life because it was just a one-time thing. Okay, so in order to address and sort of debunk, you know, this this thought process of, oh, she's just so happy all the time, I can't stand it. Or, you know, that's just the way she is. She's just a negative Nelly, man. She's just a pill. So Marty did an experiment involving classical conditioning with dogs and light electrical shocks. This very famous experiment of Marty Seligman was called his learned helplessness experiment and involves something called classical conditioning. It's kind of important to discuss how we get conditioned or learn uh, to do anything. And classical conditioning is basically how we learn a lot of what we do and largely an unconscious process. It has to do with associating one stimulus with another. So many of you may have heard of Pavlov's very famous experiment with the dogs and the um, meat powder. People often say steaks, but the poor things actually got meat powder. Sort of a really simple way to, to explain classical conditioning would be if any of you have pets, dogs or cats, um, person, I'm a dog person, uh, but I can use a cat example because I, I, a lot of students use these. When you feed a cat, you often, you know, the bag rattles, makes a sound, the, the food. And sometimes people use can openers. And typically, when you start to run the can opener, all of a sudden the cat shows up, right, ready to eat. Because the cat has been conditioned to know that when the sound of that can opener happens, that they're ready to eat. The same thing would happen if you were going to open up a, a can of chunky chicken noodle soup for yourself around their feeding time. They're thinking that they're getting fed. So they're conditioned to the sound of the can opener to that food is coming. And once the cat or dog hears the sound of the can opener, the food bag coming, they're probably salivating, which, uh, you know, once they hear that sound, which is what Pavlov's famous experiment was all about. And this, of course, also works for us humans. So with Marty's learned helplessness experiment, He rang a bell and then administered a light electric shock to a dog. After lots of repetition, because classical conditioning takes lots of repetition, when Marty rang the bell, the dog began to react as if she had already been shocked. The second part of the experiment involved a box with a little fence sort of down the middle, and one side of the fence the, the, the floor allowed for electric shock to be administered, whereas the other side of the fence was safe. No shocks, no ability to shock on the other side of the fence. The fence was short, and the dogs could clearly see that they had an escape route if they so chose. So for the dogs who had already been conditioned you know, to be shocked, with the, with the bell being rung, the thought was, oh, well, now they can jump to safety on the other side where there are no shocks. 
And that's not what happened at all. They basically gave up. They thought, you know, the thinking was nothing I can do is going to matter. Can't get away from shocks. And they just laid down. So, you know, what came out of this experiment was very, very important, valuable information because it translates to human beings, right? It, it, that we can actually learn to not try to get out of a negative situation or change a negative situation because in the past we learned that nothing we would do would, would work or help. Just think about how relatable and applicable this is to everyday life experiences. And of course, there are a gazillion of examples for this. And, and so, I mean, think of a, of a child who's growing up in a toxic home environment and, you know, learns very quickly that they don't have a voice and that whatever they say doesn't matter. And then, you know, it's no big surprise that they're not the first one to raise their hand in college or to speak up, you know, in a, in a, in a workplace situation. Also, if we grew up in a pessimistic atmosphere, you know, mom and or dad or dad and dad or whoever, if their explanatory style was one of pessimism, and that's what we grew up with, we can certainly be more predisposed to this as an adult because we learned it. And just like anything else, when we allow a behavior to continue for long enough, right, it becomes a habit. A habit is just another word for behavior. And this is often largely unconscious and very often becomes automatic. And earlier negative events can also play into how we perceive, filter, and process future negative events. So Marty Seligman's experiment on learned helplessness directly relates to pessimism is pessimists are more apt to give up easily than optimists are. The pessimist is also more prone to depression and also physical illness. Whereas optimists are less apt to give up, therefore accomplish more, are in generally in better health and live longer. And as optimists are far less prone to depression, they have a better ride through life overall. And remember that we said earlier that uh, pessimism and optimism have a whole lot to do with a person's explanatory style, meaning how they perceive event an event and how they work it through their, their thought system and then how they say it to people, how they describe the experience and for a pessimist, remember it's the three P's. Everything is permanent, pervasive, and personal. For the pessimist, whatever life event, curveball, whatever happened, is in their minds, it's permanent. It's going to happen to me forever. I'm doomed. And whatever it is that happened is also pervasive, and it's almost like a character trait or almost something part of them that caused it, which leads right into the personal piece that, you know, the, the vocabulary or the internal dialogue going on is, this is all my fault. You know, it, it, the environment piece is kind of like removed from the whole picture. And, you know, this vocabulary list, this pessimistic vocabulary list, 
I suggest you just delete from your vocabulary. I do. And when I catch myself, I just kind of say, oops, caught myself. And in my positive psychology class and my mindcraft class, we talk about this, I actually have a list. So there are words to just get rid of, delete, because, because they don't exist in life. You know, life is not a, a polarized thing. You know, there's a, it's a continuum. It's a spectrum. It just, these words don't exist. So words like everything, nothing, everyone, no one, always, never, just get rid of these words. And we can just, we can just think about how destructive and unhealthy these words are, right? Everyone, it doesn't say everyone. Think about how big that word is. Think about how big the word no one is. Always, never. Even the sun will eventually become a supernova and not be here anymore. So we say, you know, the sun always rises in the morning. You know, yeah, for now, right? It These words just ha- don't make any sense to use in life. Let's just think about um, like a hypothetical scenario with with uh, a couple in a long-term or married relationship. And think about they're having an argument, as couples do, and one partner says to the other one, you never listen to me. Think about the statistical probability of that statement. And for the other, pro- the other partner, it's just so defeating. Why bother? You know, she meets him or, or he meets him, whatever, with folded arms saying, you never listen to me. The, the partner on the receiving end, you know, probably thinking, you know, why, why even try? This is just defeating. I'm up against a brick wall. Why bother? Whereas if the partner was more precise with his words and said, you know, I feel that you don't listen to me very much, or I feel like much of the time I'm not heard. This is more accurate. The partner gets it and they're left a little bit of a a window or exit door stage left to try to fix it and make it better. But you say always, you always turn your back on me when I'm trying to talk. Like, it just may, why, does, why even try? You know, the optimistic explanatory in this style, uh, like I just said, would, would leave an exit door or a window no matter how wrong the, the partner was. They could be very, very, very wrong, and you still want to change your dialogue. You don't listen to me most of the time. I'm not feeling heard, whatever it is that you're arguing about. Okay, so let's use a different example. Remember, for the pessimist, it was the three Ps of permanent, pervasive, and personal, which is the opposite for an optimist, right? So let's say the optimist is out there, um, thought they really crushed a job interview and that they got it. Three days later, they get a phone call or email or something, you know, sorry, we've selected another candidate. The, the, and not say the optimist wouldn't be disappointed for a minute. That wouldn't be realistic. Okay? And optimism doesn't mean not being realistic. It means filtering through and looking for a more positive uh, you know, thought pattern. So for the optimist, this would not be anything permanent. It doesn't mean, oh, I didn't get this job interview. Looks like I'm never going to get a job in this field that I want. And for the optimist, remember, you know, by by having the thoughts that it could be you know, there was a more qualified candidate or the timing wasn't right means that they're also don't, they also don't have this pervasive personal component to it. It could have been something out in the environment outside of their control. You know, and like the pessimist thinks, you know, that something's due to 
something inherent, like a character trait, they don't generally, you know, desire to make the effort to, to improve things, to make a change. You know, whereas the optimist is going to look at, you know, a quote unquote failure as something that, that, you know, she or he or they can, can grow from and improve. And this, of course, was a lovely segue into um, my next episode, which is going to be on mindset and Carol Dweck's work, um, also having to do with explanatory style. And for right now, uh, I'm going to share with you an ex- kind of an example, wonderfully illustrated example by Loretta LaRoche. So if any of you aren't aware of her, I've been listening to her work for literally three decades and, you know, using some of what she, what some of, some of her work with my workshops and things, because she is absolutely hysterical. Loretta is from Brooklyn, New York, and I'm originally from the New York area. So listening to her accent alone is like a warm blanket and a cup of hot cocoa. And the best way to describe her is a comedian, comedian, who, you know, her content is largely about you know, stress management and positivity. And one of the she talks about how easy it is to be a whining mass of flesh, just wah, wah, wah. And then she uses an example of a woman, pessimistic woman saying, oh no, it's raining, it's raining, it's raining. What should I do? It's raining. And she says, get an umbrella. You know, or I think she says, buy a raincoat. <laughs> you know, and then she laughingly says, you know, it takes courage to be happy, right? Which we, you know, discussed in a previous episode with how the brain is naturally wired to, you know, to kind of think more negatively. And we actually have to kind of walk uphill to make the changes towards positive thinking. And honestly, she has me busting a gut. I would definitely suggest listening to her. She also talks about that there's a practical message here, that we are only on this earth for so long. You know, and the practical part of her message is, you know, again, we're only here for so long. This is not a dress rehearsal, right? And to figure out how we intend to spend our very valuable life minutes you know, to just kind of distract ourselves until the inevitable, because everybody's going to die. You know, and her message is a good one, you know, to figure out how we want to live these valuable moments while we're on this earth. You know, and like Marty Seligman, Loretta LaRoche says, you know, examining your explanatory style is just so, just so essential it doesn't matter what your occupation is. It doesn't matter what you do. It's so important to realize because words are a big deal. Words explain what's going on on the inside, cognitively and emotionally. You know, and our word choices also let ourselves and other people know what our intentions are. And uh, also supporting Marty and what he has to say, Loretta brings up the three P's with a pessimist, right? Everything's permanent, pervasive, and personal. And Loretta explains that for the pessimist, everything's on a, on a global scale. And again, the word everything, right? And that this happens all the time. 
So like Loretta's example with uh, the woman complaining about the rain. Okay, this would be her dialogue. It's raining. It's raining. This happens all the time. Now here's the dialogue. Do you know that this happens all the time to me? Every time I have a day off, it rains. So now all of a sudden it's a plot. Every time she has a day off, somebody must be seeding the clouds so that it will rain intentionally on her day off, like a rain conspiracy. And, of course, a universal intention is to make sure that she does not have any sun or fun on her day off. And, of course, it becomes easy to see how her dialogue of, you know, it always rains on my day off, everyone's out to get me, the clouds are out to get me, and how this feeds into a sense of hopelessness, or as we looked at earlier with Marty Seligman, the learned helplessness thing, that she learns no matter what she does, it's going to rain on her day off. And this thinking becomes habitual as, you know, her explanatory style becomes habitual and a mindset. And then Loretta, you know, kind of uses this funny example to kind of demonstrate what a slope where we feel like, you know, the woman might be saying her dialogue, that's it, there's nothing I can do, I've been boxed in, I'm the chosen one. You know, in that thought process of, they're out to get me, you know, I just know it. You know, and once we sort of get into this victim mentality, you know, it we, you know, just basically it's handing over our power on a silver platter. You know, there's nothing I can do. Poor me. Ba 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 ba. It can get very difficult to climb out of this. What we can do is, you know, when we get kind of get sick of feeling, thinking, and feeling this way, is we can make the conscious choice to learn to become an optimist. And people sometimes get confused, you know, that an optimist means, you know, having this, you know, constant sunshine and roses filter. And no, that doesn't mean at all to ignore the real or to ignore the, the negative. It just means to have a different mindset as far as explaining um, and well, interpreting and then explaining how, you know, how an event or life, a life's curveball happened. And then, you know, learning the resilient thinking of, okay, I didn't get the job or I lost the job or I thought this relationship was going to work out and it didn't. Instead of having it be permanent, pervasive, and personal to make the choice to look at this as, you know, maybe that wasn't meant to happen. Maybe I could have done this. It was an exam. Maybe I could have studied harder when I put in effort. You know, next time I'll, I'll get a better grade. Would I, you know, blah, 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 blah. But the point is take our autonomy back and our agency back and realize that we can bounce back. You know, so optimism, just like anything else, can be learned. And as mentioned in other episodes, I'm a big fan of skills more than talents, which is going to be a beautiful segue into our next episode. Not that it wouldn't be fun to be Einstein or Mozart or, you know, whoever, but the skills are really where it's at because skills mean that, you know, the heavens didn't have to part to, for something to land in our lap. Skill sets can be 
learned and developed with effort. This means we can choose it. We can make a conscious choice to learn to be an optimist. We can make a conscious choice to learn to have more resilient thinking. So once again, one of our main themes here is that thoughts come first and feelings come second, right? So when we practice thought control, just like playing the violin or, you know, practicing, you know, football or or cooking or whatever, whatever we practice, we get good at. We can practice being optimistic. We can learn to be optimistic by rehearsing optimistic thinking. Because after all, as we said earlier, this is rehearsal. You know, as far as anyone knows, this is the big game. And, you know, one thing I, I tell my own children, my own five fabulous children and, my, and also my, my fabulous students, is that there is nothing more valuable than our life minutes. That's it. This is what we're doing it all for is to, is to, is, you know, for our life minutes and to spend these wisely, spend our life minutes like they were cash. Also, when making the choice to learn to be more optimistic, it's also really important to remember that it's about progress and not. If you're used to being a negative Nelly, the brain's going to really resist you for a while. So remember that if you're a little bit more optimistic today than you were yesterday, good for you. Doesn't mean you're not going to slide into it a little bit. Even if you have a few days or a week or two weeks, you start to get into this bad habit again. Remind yourself, you know what? Starting over. Even if you started out the first half of the day and now it's noon or one or two, you can say, starting my day over right now at two o'clock. I am now going to be more optimistic than I was in the first part of this day. Progress, not perfection. Well, I know for myself that I am committed to working at being present as much as possible to enjoy this this gift of life as much as possible. And my plan is, you know, as my grandmother used to say, you know, when you go to your great reward, right, meaning heaven or however you want to label that, you know, when I'm ready, when my number's up, I want to go sliding into home, empty margarita glass in the left hand, empty bank account. And, you know, it's going to say on some kind of vase or something that, you know, she had a great ride. This is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day. Mm -hmm.